Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and, yes, some not-so-successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit. Welcome to the podcast today. We have with us Mike Feynman, who is a partner in the firm Texas Business Brokers based out of Austin, Texas. In today's episode, Mike shares with us a transaction involving a successful residential HVAC company, which is one of those industries that hasn't been impacted all that much by the pandemic because people still need their furnaces and air conditioners. The business had a number of offers immediately, but when it came time to close, the seller had a change of heart. As you listen to this story, you'll learn why a seller is not always a seller. In another transaction that didn't go all that well, Mike shares how a great idea doesn't always translate into the value that can easily be monetized when selling a business. In all of the newer ideas and concepts that I've heard on this podcast over the years, this one business concept is really one of the best I've heard. You'll need to have Mike explain how this concept evolved and what it is versus me trying to explain it here in the introduction to this episode. Mike then moves on to share the details of a transaction where a retired military serviceman started a business and hit an absolute home run. Interestingly, the real home run was not in the actual business that was listed for sale, but in what happened during the sales process. It isn't what you might expect from a deal that didn't initially get done. Finally, Mike shares the details of a transaction where he actually talked a seller out of selling his business, which doesn't happen all that often because the job of an advisor is to help entrepreneurs sell their business, not talking them out of not selling their business. This is a great story for any entrepreneur that is thinking about selling their business And the takeaway in this situation ended up tripling the exit value a few years later. It's a story well worth listening to. So let's buckle up and dive into Mike's stories on today's episode that I titled, Are You a Seller or a Seller? Well, we're here today with Mike Feynman. Mike is a business broker out of the Texas area. Mike, why don't you take a few minutes and introduce yourself, talk a little bit about your company, a little bit about where you're located in Texas, and a little bit about your specialty, if you have any specific verticals that you work in. Sounds great. So, uh, yeah, so Mike Feynman and uh, our company, my company is Texas Business Brokers, and then we also have Kentucky Business Brokers. These are national companies, so we have we have listings all over the country. We focus primarily on $1 to $20 million companies in that range, and we're Industry agnostic. I mean, we, I went through all the lists of the types of companies that uh, that we've sold. Uh, you, you'd realize the kind of the, the breadth of the types of companies from ping pong, manu- ping pong paddle manufacturers to electrical contracting companies to internet-based uh, e-commerce companies. 
Uh, we sold ev everything you could imagine. It, it amazes me sometimes the different types of companies and industries that we've been in. And uh, where in Texas are you located? So we're located, we have, we're, I'm located in Austin. We have an office in Houston. We have an office in Lexington, Kentucky. So those are really the three areas that we, we generate our, our business from. And I assume because you have those three offices, those are partners that are in those various offices? Correct. Correct. Okay. As we get started here, why don't you share a transactional story in your career that uh, you've had that we can have some good takeaways. And let's focus on a story that was specifically real challenging for you. It may or may not have made it to the closing table and, and close. And when you get done talking a little bit about that story, what are some of the takeaways? Okay. Okay. A bad transaction. I guess one that I would pick that comes to mind is I had a an HVAC company. It was a husband and wife team. And, you know, as I reflect on that, I think the biggest kind of takeaway is really know why you're selling and um, don't sell for kind of short-term issues. You know, the, this husband and wife team, they were selling because they were tired of kind of the HR side of the business. Uh, getting technicians was difficult. Uh, and, um, and it was just, I guess, stressing them out. Had they been in business for... 10, 20, 30 years? How long have they been in business? Yeah, about 15, about 15 years. He started the business. He was actually a, a technician for another company and decided, why am I making everybody else all this money? I might as well do it myself, which is a, a pretty consistent reason as to why that occurs. So, yeah, so they uh, they got tired of all of the HR stuff. It was, you know, I, th I think at that point in time with growth that was happening, this company actually was in Austin. With the growth that was happening in the Austin area, it became more and more difficult to find technicians. And so he was literally having to go get up on roofs again, and he hadn't done that in some time. And that was stressing him out. So the reason that the way that they communicated this was we want to spend more time with our, our, our son. And so that became, I think, uh, I think their son was about five or six years old. And so they want to go out, live on the ranch, you know, just take that little market and be able to run a small HBAC company out of that, and, which is a distance away from Austin and certainly non-competing. Non and so I took that at face value. Uh, as time went on, we literally had the business sold a couple of times. The first time it really ended up being the wrong buyer. The second time, they just decided that they just didn't want to sell, which is obviously as a broker, the, the, the very worst words that you hear, I decided not to sell, <laughs> you know, uh, especially when you put in a lot of energy and time. So was that decision to not sell really at the closing table then? It was pretty close. I mean, they had, we had already had the signed LOI, the financing was moving forward, you know, perfectly, almost flawlessly. And they were at a point where they finally got their, um, their loan uh, confirmation and commitment. And so they were now going through the purchase agreement, which I, the purchase agreement was perfect. I mean, it matched everything. I told them, I said, be careful when you send it. It needs to match the LOI exactly, because we will literally go off checkpoint. Of course we will, right? Point by point. And it was perfect. So yes, it was uh, almost at the altar. I guess you could say. And it's kind of interesting how the voice objection or the reasons that are given for a change in thought process or a change in the decision to sell really is never what they say. 
Yes. What someone says. I mean, I, I've been in that situation where I'm just sort of embarrassed and don't want to tell what the real reason is. You put up kind of a, a faux reason, a straw man. I've decided because of this, you know. Yeah, and, and, and really 90% of the time, we, we can work through that. And we have a, a really strong, I guess, uh, questioning process to be clear. Because the thing that we're trying to figure out at the very beginning is, uh, and I learned this from my father many years ago, is, you know, there are sellers and there are sellers. And at the end of the day, uh, we need to make sure, and, you know, with, with your viewers that are selling their companies, they need to make sure that they really are sellers and not just, yeah, I, you know, I'm a seller. Uh, because it, 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 puts, it puts the business at risk. Because even though people are signing non-disclosure agreements, you're disclosing, it puts you at risk because it, it, it affects, I think, the chemicals in your brain. If you're kind of thinking about selling, so you're not really in and maybe you're in, maybe you're not. So I think it impacts that. And maybe your people can see that. And certainly it also impacts the, the, the buyers because these buyers had spent money. I mean, they had sunk expenses in terms of legal fees and uh, fees that they paid the bank you know, that they put in the bank. So whatever they do, the bank didn't spend, they'll get back, but, you know, but it's still, it's just not, it's not appropriate. So at the end of the day, I always say, you know, and what we try to do is make sure that they're selling for the right reasons and that they really are sellers and not just thinking about selling. When you first said that, Mike, you know, I thought, well, did, did he misspeak when you said, <laughs> make sure you're a seller or you're a seller? You know, I said, well, maybe he meant something differently, but you really are saying if you're a seller or are you a seller? And it's just the inflection point, what you really are. And I like your analogy and your explanation of that the endorphins that go off in your brain to give you that high when you've made the decision to sell, or maybe you really haven't made that decision to sell. I think that's an important psychological barrier that people need to get to, to really decide if they are really a seller or a seller. So that's a point that not many people make like you made today. Yeah. And I wasn't repeating myself. My wife would say that's a first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so really the takeaway on this, I, I assume what you're saying is that it didn't sell. It was a good business. It got financed. There weren't a lot of problems. It was making great money. And just to change an attitude that the HR issues, he was able to find some technicians and the short-term pain got resolved. And so that pain went away. And so he decided to stay in the business is what you're telling me happened. Yeah, yeah. he was no longer having problems finding technicians. He was truly able to go spend time at the, at, at the ranch. And, uh, you know, and, and I think the other takeaway is, is that when, when your viewers are, are selling their business, they want to make sure that they team themselves up with a broker that's going to ask them the hard questions. And, you know, and the reality is I asked him the hard questions and he had the right answers back then, but things changed. And what you need to make sure of is as things change, that you're being clear on what's changed and where your, where your mind is. And if your mind is starting to back away from selling, put it on pause. And if, and if the broker's worth his or her salt, they will say, that's great. I want you happy. I mean, we want everybody happy. And if it means we're going to put a business, take a business off the market for a period of time, we'll do that. And that's what it takes. So I guess the real takeaway in this for our audience here is make sure that you're really a seller and not a wannabe seller or an indecisive seller. Make sure that you're really committed to the sales process and then follow through on that. Be a seller. 
<laughs> if, if this were if this were a blog article, then we'd have to be much more specific right. on how we we crafted those sentences. Caps and bold. Yeah, and bold. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to another transaction that was a little bit difficult and uh, challenging for you. Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, maybe looking at difficulty from a a bit of a different perspective. Had a company that I guess you could consider as a very Texas-based company. And what it was, it's called QuickStrike. And it was my my insurance agent actually owns the insurance company. And he had invented this box that you put in your car and you actually install it in your car on the passenger side, on the, on the passenger side of the car, on the driver's side of the passenger side. And you hit a button, you put your firearm in there, your pistol, and you hit a button and it pops out and puts the gun in ready position. So let me get this. So it's a safe that is installed in your car, and you said it was on the passenger side. So the safe is on the passenger side where the left knee would be, right? Correct, yep. And you reach down, and you press a button, and be in shoot-ready position, right? Is that what you're saying? That's correct. Well, that's nifty. That's correct. And there's one version with a key, which is obviously less expensive. And then the second version is biometric. So a fingerprint. Fingerprint, which is a little bit more expensive. It's a great idea and it was patented. Well, I think it's a great idea because when someone is tapping or breaking your window, seconds count. That's right. And uh, seconds do count. So you say, well, what's the issue? And it was patented. So they had the patent. They went through all the processes and it was done. It wasn't patent pending. It was patented. So, you know, Mike, what's the issue here? This is great. Well, the issue was it was not an ongoing concern. So at the end of the day, they had sold 160 units, 200 units. And they had done that a couple of years before, I think it was in 2017. So it was definitely a sellable proposition. It wasn't even marketed and it sold like that. Uh, but the problem was it wasn't an ongoing concern. So the, you have a couple of issues. One is how do you value it? And then, you know, you, you can come up with any type of argument you want for any size market you want to come up with, right? We could do uh, the, the, the analysis of the number of gun holders, and we could probably find out how many people carry their gun in the car. And, you know, we could figure that out, and then we get X percentage of that market, and you can come up with a number. But at the end of the day, that's, you know, what it's potential. And the way I define potential is it just hadn't been done yet. So it was difficult to, to value it. Uh, we ended up valuing it, I believe, at three quarters of a million dollars. So it was not a large company. And um, but the problem was, is that we had to show financials from two years ago and it was maybe $20,000 in seller discretionary income. So this was really in terms of the size of the company was super small. And the only thing that we really attracted were manufacturers that were acting like sellers. Yeah, I'm a seller. I'm interested. And once we got them on the buyer seller call, well, what are you paying per unit? Oh, I could do it for cheaper. So it ends up that we weren't even finding people that were particularly interested in, in buying the patent and blowing that out, including some strategic buyers. I mean, we even looked at strategic buyers. If the company was generating $100,000, $200,000 a year with no marketing, it was actually in, you know, it was an ongoing concern, it would have been a lot easier to sell. So, you know, I think that the big lesson here, if you're selling a $20 million company or a $10 million company, but it's not making money, because maybe we're, we're putting all of the money back into marketing, um, so it's not making money yet. It's, it's really tough to sell. It's not really a profitable, ongoing concern. It needs to have an operating history. 
think about going to the bank and trying to get the bank to borrow on that. Now, if you're Dick Sporting Goods and you're trying to get the bank to borrow on that, it's probably a lot easier. But if you're myself or you know somebody else that you know maybe has experience taking things to market, but you know uh, hasn't done it at this level of what it, what it would take, it, you're not going to be able to borrow money, and so therefore it becomes a cash deal. And finding someone that's willing to do that pr- proved very difficult. So really, what you're kind of saying is that. No matter how great the idea is, generally you can't get an idea financed through a traditional lending institution like a bank. They just don't finance ideas. They finance operating history and historical earnings. Right. And you may be able to find a peg to do that, but then they're going to want a huge chunk. And, you know, now you've bought a job, so to speak. So for our, for our audience, you know, uh, define a peg for our audience. Uh, private equity group. Sorry about that. So you might be able to find companies that that finance things like that or an angel investor or something like that, but you're going to give up everything and then you're going to be beholden and who knows what kind of personal guarantees they're going to require you to do. So what's the, what, you know, so what, right? So the, I think the so what is if you have an idea like that, build it out, get it to the point where it has a, a trajectory to, uh, and it's moving on that trajectory where it's obvious that this is the direction it's going to go in. Yeah, well, it's a great idea. I mean, I think that's a, I've, I've never actually heard anything like that. I mean, there are all sorts of containers and your gun racks and everything in a car and locking your car and different things that you do to protect your gun, but to have the actual safe that pops it out in a gun ready position, that's a great idea. Well, my wish for you is that you never need that. (laughs) (laughs) Also true. Also true. (laughs) Well, let's shift gears a little bit then and move over to some transactions that went well and in some cases maybe extraordinarily well. All right. So here's one. If if you look at a, you know, I said earlier that the worst words that you ever hear are, uh, I don't want to sell. Right. That's, you know, as a broker, when you're, you know, obviously you support your your seller, your client every which way you want your client happy, you want your buyer happy. And then if that happens, you'll be happy. So we had a, an e-commerce company. It was actually a military inspired e-commerce company. And we went in there. It was a, a Marine who actually um, served in Afghanistan. It's just a great guy. And he had built this company starting with selling bumper stickers out of his out of the trunk of his car. I mean, what a great story, right? He comes back, he's fighting for our country. We're living under the you know, very peace that he provides. And he comes back and he's got um, some impacts, some uh, psychological impacts from the things that he saw and the things, you know, just we can't even imagine. I can't imagine. And um, has to make money. So he decides that he's going to, and he is very creative and just a super, super creative guy, a good artist. And he decides, decides that he's going to design these, these military-inspired bumper stickers. He, can't, he, he, he sells out like that. He sells them on Facebook, sells them out of the back of his car, and he can't keep them in stock. So he starts expanding his inventory by himself, starts expanding his selection, and he's got now T-shirts. And then now he's got flags, and it gets bigger and bigger. And next thing you know, he's doing $2.7 million in sales within a couple of years, and he's making... a year. What a great story, right? We hope this for all of our, the people that go fight wars for us and we, you know, uh, protect us. 
So he was at the point, though, with all the impacts that he had that, uh, you know, he needed, he, he couldn't take the stress. The stress had an amplifi amplification in terms of the fact that um, now he's under stress and he's already dealing with the, the stress from the past. So he brings us in. We get the company under contract for a million and a half dollars, pretty quickly, actually. And uh, we start moving through the deal process. It's a, a Marine. It's a private equity guy, and it's a person that's really good from an operating standpoint. Worked for USAA and really understands, you know, operations. Didn't understand e-commerce, but understood operations. We're at the point where we've got a letter of intent signed, and we're starting to work on the purchase agreement. And the seller comes to us, at my partner and I, and says those dreaded words, I don't want to sell. <laughs> And so we said, well, why not? And he goes, well, he goes, look, he goes, that group that's going to buy it, they have a Marine and they have two other people that can run the company and lead the company. What we have between us three, and we were shocked. We didn't see this coming. I'm a Marine and Mike, you know, business and Alex, you know how to run the nuts and bolts. Why don't you guys come in and make the company better and then we'll sell it. So we walked in and we got 10% of the company. We got an exclusive on selling it on the other end. And um, that 10% also generated income for us. So we made some income. Five months later, uh, the company was growing at 170, 200% every single month. And he decided, and stress obviously was uh, really amplified at that point. He decided, I'm ready now. Let's sell it. Okay, so let's rewind this for a minute so I kind of understand the dynamics of what's really happening here. He gets to a point where he wants to sell this business that he's worked on for a couple of years. It's making a ton of money. You said about $750,000? Yep, correct. And you had an offer on the table for a million and a half. And then he decides he doesn't want to sell it because the people sitting at the table that he's talking to, you and the seller and another person that's involved in operations, that you have all the components the same as the buyer had. And so he doesn't want to sell. He wants to grow the business now. So you do. So what did you do in those, you said, five months that you were growing, doubling every month in sales? So, um, so I came in and did a strategic planning session where we got very clear on the five-year vision. And then based on that, we got clear on the five years of missions to get there. And then on the current year mission, we developed the strategies to accomplish this year's mission and then the tactical plans for each of those. So as an example, you know, marketing and how we were going to better market it on Facebook and, and um, other, other different areas. And, and from a financial standpoint, how we were going to le leverage Shopify and, and be able to leverage those services to maybe be able to save money and enhance the experience. So we had all, all you know, inventory and how we were going to expand inventory and make sure that we didn't have outage, product outages. So we had a very organized plan. And then once a week, we got together and I was kind of like the, um, the ringleader and we go through the plan and we'd say, where are we at on this? Has it been done? Well, why didn't that get done? okay, we'll move that one more week, but it's got to get done, you know, or, okay, looks like we don't need to do that anymore. So we had a really organized approach to driving the business and, uh, and, and, you know, we got staffed in the, in the warehouse to make sure that we could fulfill. We handled uh, customer service a lot. So we did a lot of the kind of the, the blocking and tackling that needed to be done to be able to go through. It wasn't rocket science, but it was an organized approach, comprehensive approach to building the business. 
and the business started exploding. And so five months later, where were your sales at? So five months later, so we were doing 2.7 and five months later, we were heading towards $5 million in sales that year. And so what was the selling price you decided to sell after five months? What was the selling price? So we decided to sell and the one, uh, one of the groups that looked at it prior to it going under contract came back to us when we were, when we were thinking about selling again, because, you know, again, the seller came to us and said, look, I, I just need it. I'm ready. I'm ready. Let's just get rid of this thing. And at the same time, one of the previous uh, potential buyers came to us and said, we'll offer you $3 million for the business. And it ended up closing at $2.7 million. So you went from 1.5 to 1.7 in five months, 1.2 million increase in sales price in five months. Right. So we went from 1.5 million to 2.7 million. And as a broker, right, we got 10% of the sale price, plus we got 10% of uh, the sale price again for the brokerage fee. And we got paid for those five months, 10% of the profits. And it was fun. So yeah, we went from one and a half million to 2.7 million in five months. So I guess the real takeaway here, Mike, is if you have the ability to think strategically, create a plan, and probably most importantly, to execute on that plan, uh, you can create real value. Yeah. I mean, if you think about, you know, Quick Strike, the gun company, he had a plan, but he hadn't executed it. And so it's really hard to sell, you know, what I would consider a marketing opportunity versus with zero, you know, for this other company, we had a plan, we executed that plan, added value, and then sold it. Well, <laughs> that's quite a story. I, I've... Uh... <laughs> You know, when the numbers you're talking about, the percentage increase there in five months, that's quite remarkable. It's all about execution. If you can create the plan and you can execute on it, you can, as I said, without repeating myself here, execution creates value. And hats off to the team. Yeah. Because we had a great team and you can't do anything without a team. It's all about the people. All right. Well, that's a great story. So let's kind of wrap one up here with another story that I think turned out extraordinarily well. I doubt if you can top that, but uh, share another transaction with us that turned out well. Yeah, this is one of actually one of um, my first deals that I ever that I ever sold. And uh, it was interesting because I'm meeting with a husband and wife team and uh and I'm still learning my role. This was, I don't know, 10 years ago. And I'm still learning my role. And, and um, you know, you have sometimes where the seller says, I don't want to sell those dreaded words. But then there are some times when a broker needs to tell you that you should not be selling. And, the, and, that, and that's tough. And it's kind of, uh, you know, contrary to what I found myself in this position, because you, you just have to do the right thing. And you have to be honest and direct and, and real with your clients. And so there are times when as a broker, I have to tell people you shouldn't be selling. This company was a wedding company and really uh, a wedding talent company. So they managed the DJ uh, process, a pretty, you know, pretty decent sized company. They managed the DJ um, DJs for weddings. And so they basically would pair or couple the wedding style with the different DJs in the stable. So depending upon the age of the, you know, of the, um, of the wedding party, then it's a different type of experience from a DJ standpoint, et cetera. And, you know, but the reality was that they had not diversified, had not expanded, had not marketed. You know, he started the company, he was a DJ and he knew all the DJs and he decided to start this company and become in essence, a contractor of DJs. So when I was meeting with them, I said, 
And this was crazy. I couldn't believe I was doing it. And the words were coming out of my mouth. And I thought, wow, this is really magical. You know, I mean, this is important. What I'm learning right now just through, like, you know, doing it is really important. And I just said, you can't sell the company. And they said, what do you, what do you, and I had all the books out. This was 10 years ago. So there wasn't as much done on the internet. We, you know, scanned things and, you know, but it's hard to sell, send emails with that, the size of, uh, of attachments. Um, but anyway, so we got her and I just said, you can't sell the company. And they said, what are you talking about? I said, well, first of all, when you sell the company uh, to the husband, I said, you're gonna have to go back to work. And I said, I don't see you working for anybody. He was not the type that was going to go work for someone and someone was going to, you know, punch a clock. I said, so what are you going to do? And he goes, well, I'm going to make a lot of money when I sell the company. I said, but this is how many years you're going to be able to sustain yourself. And then you're going to have to get a job. He was, they were in their early thirties. And they said, so what are you proposing? And I said, fix it. And they said, well, what do you mean? I said, grow it. They said, we, we, we have no idea what to do. We don't know what to do. We don't know how. So we did that same strategic planning process that I did with the e-commerce company, you know, literally seven years later with them. So if you can imagine us with a flip chart and, you know, the post-it flip charts and, you know, listing our five-year vision, doing a reflecting exercise to get there, coming up with our five years of mission, success planning, coming up with our strategies for the current year, tactical plans, enabling culture. We built that plan and started executing it. And I became their, um, I guess you could call it fractional uh, chairman. And so every month I'd have a call with them or a meeting and we would go through and um, uh, go through the plan and why wasn't this done and was this done, et cetera. I didn't get ownership this time, <laughs> but it didn't matter. I got paid as a consultant. And the good news was at that time, two of my three daughters were getting married. I'm the poor soul that had two weddings within seven months. And so they, uh, I was able to get um, a, uh, all of my wedding uh, DJ and, and, and so gave me more interest in expanding them because they also did lighting and they also did the photo booth. So I was able to get all of that in kind. Well, as we all know, others have daughters. Weddings are not cheap. Not cheap, but fun and uh, great events. And fortunately, they're both very happily married and they've both given us the gift of grandkids. So it's great stuff. But literally, we executed that plan. And two years later, we sold the company for literally three times what we would have sold it for initially. What would be the big takeaway here? And I think the big, the big takeaway for this one is, you know, kind of like, what's your role? And at that time, you know, their role was they were running the day-to-day. -day. They were in charge of everything. And so they were just basically keeping afloat. And I think, you know, preparing for your exit, exit, which is a big part of Marvin, what you talk about is how do you, how do you exit? These are, you know, exit strategy stories. Um, you got to really think ahead and think about what do I need to do? What can I do? And how, who can I get help from to do it to make sure that I'm super, super clear on, um, uh, on how to ultimately get to my goal and exit properly? You know, understanding where I'm at today understanding where the business can go and what I need to do to get there. And then also asking, well, if someone bought it today, what would be their objections? And how do I solve for those before I put it on the market? Yeah, I think what I've noticed, you know, in all the interviews that I've done and the businesses that I've owned and operated and sold is it doesn't really make any difference if you're running a $2 million a year business, a 
$10 million a year business or even a $20 million a year business, the same principles really apply. And your comment here a little earlier as you're sharing this story with us is, you know, what's your role? What do you do on a day-to-day basis when you're talking to the entrepreneur, the, the person that's driving the business? What is his real role? And more importantly, functionally, what if he's doing? And I'm sure you would confirm this, and you probably have a number of transactions and deals that you've been involved in where nothing happens when the owner is not there. And he has to sprinkle holy water on every decision that's made and every thing that goes on in the company and the company is really cannot function without him. And when you have that type of situation, whether it's a $2 million or a $20 million a year business, and I've seen $20 million a year businesses and more being paralyzed because the owner is a control freak or has to be involved and that business becomes very difficult to sell because of the critical importance of that person presence because no one else can make a decision and may not even know how to make a decision when that's the culture. I'm sure you find the same thing. And that this is what really happened here is that you fix that. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it as to the involvement of owners, is it, because I've sold a lot of companies where their name was in, in, in the name of the company, like Bobby Sanford Electric, right? So that's a first hurdle that they start asking, well, what happens when he's gone, when Bobby isn't here anymore? Well, that's surmountable. That's surmountable because there's plenty of companies where the owner is not the original founder and it's still flourishing and doing great. Second question becomes, what are the relationships that the owner has? Who has the relationships with the clients? And if it's Bobby that has the relationships with the clients, that's that's a, could be a problem. And we need to understand that and figure out the transaction. And then the third level of that, which is down in, in kind of the depths of the company, is what is this person doing? And I always, and I would ask all of the, you know, the viewers here, the, um, the, the audience, the question is, if you look at the things that you're doing in your business, there's must do, like the owner has to do this. For example, I handle all the bank, all the money. Sorry, but I handle the money. But there are things that I would consider, and, and, and I, I wouldn't take this the wrong way, but I would consider brainless tasks that really the opportunity costs for if I'm spending time, you know, doing what you're talking about, I'm involved in these things that really are immaterial, but I do it because it's my nature. I do it because I have to stay busy. I do it because that's the way I've always done it. You need someone, a broker, uh, you know, really a, a, a business coach, which is a lot of what we do as well through the process to ask you those hard questions. What do you do? What do you do each day? What do you do each part of the day? Why are you doing that? What if you didn't do that? Who would you hand it off to? Because to me, anybody could do that. And then if you handed it off, what would you be doing differently that would be better for you, whether it's for the business or for you? So for example, if I gave that up and I got two hours a week, what if I spent those two hours a week working out? What if I spent those two hours a week on the phone with my granddaughters? What if I spent those two hours a week marketing my business? There's this whole menu of things based on what you really, what's really important in life. So, you know, the question becomes, um, how do you exit yourself? Because it adds a level of complexity that's manageable when I'm trying to sell a business where I am the business. And so if you're trying to sell a business, you need to make sure that you've extricated yourself out of those things that you can. So nobody says, well, what happens when you leave? 
it's going to all fall apart because you're the only glue. So you have to work on that now as part of that exit strategy. And I think it's really important to emphasize for those that are listening in today, it doesn't really make any difference the size of your business. As I said, 10, 15, 20 million dollar a year business, the same issue of the importance of the owner being there and nothing happening if he isn't there. And it amazes me. You know, early in my career, I wanted to be involved in and because it was so important to me. I mean, my livelihood depended on it. So I wanted to be involved in those, those decisions, but I quickly learned that it just didn't work very well. And the sooner you can figure that out and the sooner you can fix it in your business, the better off you'll be. And the value that you create, there's probably nothing in anything that you can do in the business that creates more value than fixing that one thing. Yeah, you're sub-optimizing yourself. I mean, at the end of the day, you grew that business to that point, And that was the skills that you had to do it. And you got to focus on that stuff that grows the business. And don't focus on the things that is you're, you're sub-optimizing. You're focusing on the things that don't add value that anybody else can do. Personally, as well as professionally, you're sub-optimizing yourself. But because we're so caught up in our ways for so many years, we need someone to ask us those hard questions. We need someone to really literally get in our face and say, why are you doing that? Well, because I really feel like, no, but really, why? come on. <laughs> what if you didn't do that? That's the most important question. What if you stopped doing that? You know, I always say you got to develop a list of three things. Start, stop, and continue. What are things that I should start doing that I'm not doing? What are things that I should stop doing that I am doing? And what things are that I should continue doing that I'm already doing? And if you really ask those questions based on what your goal is, my goal is to sell this company at $20 million. Okay, then to accomplish that, what do you need to start, stop, and continue doing? Let me walk you through that. Let me ask you those hard questions. If your broker doesn't do that, if your broker doesn't look at the two different sides of opportunity, one side of opportunity is the stuff that you ought to do before you sell, and the other side of the opportunity is the stuff that the buyer is going to get that we're trying to sell. If you don't deal with the first one, you're not going to make as much money, and it's going to be tough. So you got to have a broker that's going to walk you through that and be honest with you, and you need to be open to it also. Well, I think good counsel, good wisdom, hard one, I'm sure. You've seen all the different things that happen in getting a business ready for sale by positioning it properly and asking those tough questions and being willing to make the tough changes and the hard choices to follow through on those changes that you've made and really realize what it's going to take to optimize the value of your business and to maximize the profitability and the success of an exit. Well, Mike, this has been great. I appreciate you taking the time. If uh, someone wanted to reach out and get a hold of you, what's the best way to do that? Should they connect with you on LinkedIn, go to your website, send you an email? What would be the best way for them to get a hold of you? Yeah, so I'd say all those things. Um, LinkedIn, uh, email me at mike at texasbusinessbrokers.com. Call me at 214-592-3637. I'm 24-7. I'm 24-7 personally and professionally, so I'm always connected. And always there to help, to help folks. So either either LinkedIn, email, or or phone, text, e whatever they feel comfortable from a communication standpoint, I'll be a chameleon for them. All right. Well, Mike, the, appreciate you taking the time today and sharing your experience and the stories that you shared with us. So this is Marvin L. Storm with Business Exit Stories, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. <laughs> 
For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember, maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning.